At this point, I couldn't tell whether or not it was quite anemic in the sense of, oh, you know, you're a bit anemic, or whether it was that classic British understatement, which basically meant, okay, you need to get to a hospital now. Hello, and welcome back to the next episode of the Trail Running Women podcast. I have a guest today who is originally from England, had spent some time overseas, and was currently in Canada when we spoke. And then I actually got to run into her at the BMO Marathon before the race. I have not followed up with her. So Sophie, if you're listening, please tell me how the race was. Before we get into the episode, today's show is brought to you by Knackbar Nutrition. Now you guys have heard me talk about them for a while and they are the Canadian brand who's really focusing on sustainability and making sure that the packaging and the ingredients are suited to keep the environment strong as well as you during your endurance event. So check them out at knackbar.com for bars that have an amazing um, immersion, amazing consistency that you can actually get in mid-run, a protein powder, waffles, and many other things. You can use my discount code TRW15 for 15% off at checkout. That's knackbar.com. The second sponsor for today's show is Spartan Trail Races. So you've probably seen the Spartan Obstacle Course. Races go on, amazing events, totally family friendly, and they've started setting up trail races. They are putting on everything from 5Ks to ultra distances in some of the most amazing terrain. So if you check them out at spartan.com, check out where they have their trail races, pick one that you want to do, and I will give you a discount code that gets you into that race for free. Okay, here's what you have to do to get that code because I only have 50 of them. Post a picture of yourself running, aka training for your Spartan Trail race, and hashtag Spartan Trail and tag Spartan, S-P-A-R-T-A-N, and at Hillsport55, aka me, and I will DM you that code. So that's hashtag Spartan Trail and tag Spartan and Hillsport55 with a photo of you running, and that's it. You're in that race for free. So go do that now. Sophie. I want to say her last name is pronounced Shawden, but she has an accent, so I might be butchering that, and I apologize in advance. So I love her story because it is a little bit opposite. We talk about a lot of people who are athletic, but they're not running, or that they've been so sporty their whole life that they've kind of had to find their identity as someone other than the athlete. And Sophie was the opposite. She was the academic one. You can tell listening to our uh, conversation that she's really well-spoken. She's very smart. Went to Oxford University and she ended up getting involved in rowing and eventually found the trails. So we hear her story about how she got into endurance events um, and at the same time getting diagnosed for celiac. And now we've had people talk about not being able to eat gluten We haven't talked about actually having full-blown celiac, which is a different issue um, because as we get more into the show, and don't quote me, I'm not a doctor, I only know from this interview and also my dad is this way, um, if you have full-blown celiac, the fibers in your intestine will not absorb nutrients anymore if you have gluten. So you can end up getting to a point where you lose all of your nutrients even though you might be eating well. Um, And obviously a bunch of things come from that. So I will let Sophie tell more about that. And I have to quickly correct myself. Hillary Matheson had this, and this was way back episode, um, early, early on. So we haven't spoken about it in a long time. But she was another person who 
was seemingly healthy and then didn't understand why her body started to um, change in a way that um, at the time doctors didn't have a super easy diagnosis for. Um, and these, the celiac was sort of just kind of coming to the surface of something that a lot of people do struggle with. So we talk about how Sophie navigates races, long runs, training, uh, travel, and life in general. She was a pleasure to chat to. So I'll leave it at that and I will let her tell the rest of the story. Right before we get into the episode, I just want to say a couple of thank yous. People who are leaving ratings and reviews, that's how more people can find us. So thank you so much. If you reached out because of the BMO race recap, a lot of people had the most heartfelt messages. Um, so thanks. That was just cool to hear all of that. And if you want to hear the backlog of episodes, they're up on the Patreon. And that link is, well, you can just search Trailing Women Podcast on Patreon. Or you can find the link in my bio on Instagram at hillsport55. And please do come check out the Baker Picks and say hello. I'm selling my kid. It's not true. That's why people stay, because he's too cute. Yesterday, at the pool, he stole my mom's pants after we got out of the pool and ran into the lobby, and he was naked, and he threw her pants into the yoga room in the gym and then ran away again. So I had to chase the naked baby as well as find my mom's pants. It was a thing. The guy's a personality, let me tell you. Okay, that's it for real. Thanks, guys. Bye. Welcome back to the next episode. I'm here today with Sophie Shodden, who is another guest who is originally from London. I think you might be like our sixth English person now, perhaps. Currently in Toronto, and we had been chatting a bit about things that Sophie has gone through, including running with celiac, which is, I believe we had one other guest, Hillary, way back at the beginning, but we haven't touched on it in a long time. And it is a very interesting topic and something I think a lot of people are still discovering and learning about. So I'm really glad that you are willing to share your story. Welcome to the show, Sophie. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So let's start, as we usually do, with the history. How old are you now? Uh, I recently turned 30. Happy birthday. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's get your background is actually a bit all over the place. Let's start with uh, what you do for work and why you're traveling. You're currently in Toronto, correct? Yes. Uh, So I work in data. Um, So I look after data for the international markets of a UK based company. Um, So actually ended up, uh, I started working for them while I was still living in London, um, but then uh, covered a lot of different markets, uh, just traveling to them. And then a few years ago, we launched up in Australia, um, in Sydney ended up really enjoying the time that I'd spent out there traveling, Uh, ended up spending a few months out there as COVID kicked off, Um, decided that I wanted to move there permanently, but did end up having to come back home because, you know, you go out there for three months and then you can't very well not come home in the middle of a pandemic. Um, So moved back and then uh, ended up being able to travel out to Australia at the start of 2021, even though the borders were still closed. So really fortunate with that. Um, And I've been living out in Sydney ever since. Um, But as borders have started to open up around the world, sort of able to get traveling again. So, um, you know, travel to our different markets and also just 
general travel a little bit around holidays, um, start giving talks around the world again, which which is why I'm in Toronto. Wow. That kind of case, so the first sentence of your bio is like, I was the academic one and I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a very, like a, an interesting job, but also a lot of freedom with your job, which is kind of the goal, I think, that a lot of people have. But anyways, that's a side tangent. So you went to Oxford University. Did Let's talk about when you started running and uh, sports you played at university and growing up as an athlete. Um, so I started running probably when I was about uh, 17 and that was not in any way at all serious. Um, so when I, I listened to previous episodes and people were like, yeah, I run, uh, you know, I did cross country at school and cross country is just not really something you do at school when you're a kid in London. Um, <laughs> athletics as a whole, they're not really a big part of English school. So there are a lot of sports like netball and hockey, and I am terrible at ball sports and it just didn't really enjoy them. So I never really had this idea of myself as a sporty kid growing up um, because I was terrible at all the sports that we did at school. Um, so I was pretty active. Um, you know, I swam quite a lot. I did gymnastics, which awful was, uh, also I was terrible at because I started way too late and I was terrified I was going to break my neck. So as soon as it came to, you know, the back handsprings and anything involving, uh, throwing myself around, I was just a complete wuss. Um, so when it came to running, it was definitely a way to, sort of unwind during revision for my end of school exams um it was never anything where I was like okay yeah I'm a runner it was I really need to get out of the house because I have got this incredibly organized revision timetable and my parents are telling me to dear god take a break from your books and that was pretty much the only thing I could think of to do was just get outside for a bit run around the common and come back before dinner um so yeah I think my parents were like okay you know have a life go see your friends get out of the house and I was just there being like no 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 but I've really got to push myself I've got to do well in exams this is so interesting because we've spoken to people who relate so much as an athlete and that's their identity and they put arguably too much emphasis on I'm an athlete whether it be a runner later in life or some other sport growing up they play at university myself included and then you go through this identity shift of like okay well I also have to see if I can be um someone that has a career you know what I mean and like broaden our spectrum of who we really identify with as a person um but I think you're our first guest who's like I like you've said I'm not the sporty one and I'm the academic one like identified so much as the smart person that you felt like you had to put everything into that and like couldn't excel at sports because that wasn't your lane um it's so interesting coming into the other side and then obviously we'll get into the successes you've had since running but let's talk about that a bit and how you kind of shifted into realizing that you can kind of do both yeah so I think going to Oxford definitely was a part of that um so Oxford for those who aren't aware has a really really big rowing scene um, there's a varsity between Oxford University and Cambridge University called the Boat Race. Um, it's televised on the BBC. It's watched by millions around the world. And it's a pretty big deal in the rowing community. 
even though it's it's quite an exclusive event because firstly you've actually got to get into one of those universities and then you've got to make the squad uh, but it is very well known and you do get quite a few athletes particularly post olympics who will come in kind of as a way of coming down um, without completely leaving the rowing world because doing the boat race is a great way to get a world-class uni- uh, world-class education and you know continue rowing at a very high level but without the pressure of having to train for you know seven eleven years um on your on your country's rowing team um so i think that was you know having i only started rowing at university but uh, and by rowing i mean coxing i'm five one and kind of skinny and uh, definitely never going to be particularly good at rowing um, but I could be small, I could be switched on in a boat um, and kind of enjoy bossing people around. Um, so <laughs> what, what does bossing up... mean? Sorry, I know nothing about rowing. Okay, um, so when you're, when you're rowing, you can row um, as a single person in a boat, you can row as two people in a boat. But once you start getting to four people in a boat, you can row four people in a boat with uh, just one of the rowers steering. But once you get to four or eight people, it can be a little more easy if you have someone else steering the boat. And particularly when you've got eight people in a boat, which is called an eight, um, it's really dangerous because the rowers are facing backwards for one of them to be steering because you've got this incredibly long vessel. You've got a lot of people working very hard to stay in time um, and you're facing completely the wrong way to see where you're going. And an eight is not a boat that moves particularly quickly. So you have a little person sitting at the front, um, generally under 50 kilos if you're coxing women and 55 kilos if you're coxing men. So pretty small because the idea is to limit the dead weight, although the idea of calling a cox dead weight does kind of um, undermine the amount of work that they do. Um, (laughs) But it's basically someone to steer the boat. Um, And then when you're coxing at an international level, you're often on these rowing lakes and steering isn't particularly hard unless you're in a crosswind. Um, so you also have the, the Cox has a microphone and their job becomes a little bit more about executing the race plan. So in the boat, uh, during a race, during a training session, they are essentially the voice of the coach. They're the one who sees what's going on with all the other boats is telling the rowers, Hey, you do this. This is what's going on in the boat. Um, okay, we're here in relation to the other boats because if you're behind some of the other boats and you're facing backwards, you can't actually see what's going on and you want to keep everyone really focused in the boat. Uh, You want to keep their heads on, you know, what they're doing, how everyone else in the boat is doing and you don't want them looking around, upsetting the balance of the boat, trying to figure out what else is going on. So you are the kind of one point of contact with the outside world. You're the one who is telling them, okay, this is what we're going to do, gather around, this is the race strategy, this is how we're going to execute. Oh, that's cool. Okay. So that explanation actually helps understand like how you got to be so involved in the success of the team and get the feel for what playing a sport can really bring. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's a very academic sport as it were, because you're not really doing anything particularly physical. Uh, but if you've got a good brain, if you, if you get on with a team, if you, and it's, it's also something that, you can become good at um, quite quickly in a way that, you know, if you're new to rowing and you haven't been doing a ton of other sports, then it's quite hard to build up the strength and the endurance necessary to become good at it. Whereas I think coxing, 
you can sort of condense that um, that growth as a Cox um, a little more quickly. So it was just that bit easier to step up to Coxing for the university teams over the course of my degree, which I don't think would have been possible if I'd been starting as a novice rower with um, with no real physical background. Right. Yeah. I think it, yeah, most sports though, I think like to excel, like a lot of people are physically talented, but to play a sport intelligently is a different thing. Yeah. Um, like, I don't think they're that, I don't think they're that separated. I think a lot of sports are like that. Anyways, I'm coming to this conclusion, especially because of my new tennis venture against like 70 year old men that can't actually move, but their strategy in doubles tennis is so <laughs> smart that you can't get to the ball. Um so anyways, I just think that's, um, this is a really cool kind of thing to be learning about yourself at university as well as doing your degree and all of those things. Yeah. So let's wrap it into your running as well. Um, you basically had to stop rowing when you finished university. And then I guess to fill that space, just started to run extra. Is that correct? Um, sort of. So I actually, I did carry on rowing once I left university. Um, I spent a year, so I moved back to London um, spent a year at another university's uh, rowing program. Um, they've got a kind of uh, development center for the national team. So spent a year there trying to figure out whether or not I wanted to take coxing more seriously. Um, in the end, I realized that, you know, coxing, there's really only one seat in the boat. And I just didn't want to put myself through the stress of, you know, three, four years trying for an Olympics and just dropping at the last hurdle. Um, which is similar reason to why I ended up um, sort of moving more into long distance rather than uh, sort of doing shorter, speedier stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, so ended up stopping rowing, um, had a lot more time. But at that point, I had also moved back uh, home home, so living with my parents. And at that point, I thought, you know, I'm running quite a lot, but I really just need to get out and meet some more people for this stopgap year where I'm back home with my parents. Um, so I ended up being like, well, you know, a sports club, easy way to meet people. What sports do I do? Uh, running, I guess. Um, so joined my local running club. Um, and that's when I ended up taking it a little bit more seriously. Um, and they actually do this, uh, this kind of mini holidays wrapped in with a marathon or a half marathon in Marrakesh um, every January. And I thought, well, I've never been to Morocco. Um, I, I would love to get on that. You know, four days in Morocco sounds sounds really cool. Um, got a half marathon. Great. I've, you know, never done a half marathon. And then I thought, well, if I'm flying out there, kind of might as well do the full marathon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just, it kind of seemed like, well, why not? Um, you know, I was sort of with the rowing at university, I was already sort of of the mindset of why not just throw yourself off the deep end? That's a great way to learn. Um, because by all rights, I should not have been good enough for the university team. And, you know, my first year, I, I wasn't particularly good, um, but just had managed to push myself by being in the right environment. I thought, well, you know, might as well sign up for the marathon. And, you know, worst case, you can just walk a ton of it. But, I, you know, I believe I can get through it. Um, so yeah, signed up for the full marathon and that's kind of when everything just started with, uh, with all the running. So how did that first marathon go? Um, 
not great. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I told myself, I was like, well, based on the times I'm currently running, you know, I wasn't a particularly speedy runner. Um, and that was fine. I thought, you know, long distance is great because I am not fast. I do not want to push myself. I just, you know, whereas the longer you go, the easier it is. For pe- people's first question isn't, oh, how fast did you do it? It's more like, a, you know, how far did you go? Um, but uh, yeah, so I kind of assumed I would come in around 4.30. But this is a marathon, which is not through the center of Marrakesh. You sort of run around the outside and then you end up on a building site where they're building some new apartments for a while. And then it finishes, particularly if you're slow. Um, you run down the main highway straight into the midday sun. And because you're on the highway, you get all these really, uh, really enthusiastic Moroccans who are trying to cheer you on, except they're cheering you on by honking their horns really loudly. <laughs> and by this point, the marshals had kind of wandered away because they're sort of coming in around the five hour, five hour 15 mark. And they, they seem to be like, OK, well, we can kind of you know, open up the course back again. So very little marshalling. Uh, you've got all this honking going on. And even in January, the midday sun was pretty hot. And by that point, I was just, you know, feeling very, very slow, very, 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 very drained. Um, so came in, I think, around 5.15. Um, but even then, even knowing how, you know, unpleasant it had been at the end, I sort of thought, okay, well, this is something that I know I want to do again. Yeah, it's funny how it doesn't matter how much it hurts, you still can get totally addicted, which obviously you did because the next line of your bio is now I've done 25 marathons and ultras since 2017, going up to 105 kilometers in distance. Um, so that's a lot in not a, or in a pretty short amount of time. So before we get into kind of what happened in August 2020, let's connect the dots a bit between that marathon and then signing up for uh, 50k and beyond yeah so um again with that same running club they said okay well we've got some spots for brighton marathon um so marrakesh had been in january and then brighton which is uh down on the uk south coast about an hour outside of london um that was i think around uh, either march or may time um, so I was like, yep, I'll, I'll sign up for that. Um, ended up going sub 4.30, which I was really, really proud of because I kind of assumed after Marrakesh that that wasn't going to be possible. And to knock 45 minutes off your time in the space of a few months, I was like, okay, that, that's a good sign. Um, and enjoyed that one a, a lot more. Um, but also figured, you know what, I'm not really enjoying having all these crowds around. I just kind of like running to be in my own head a little bit more. Um, so signed up for a couple of trail marathons um, and found one that was a 50k and I was like well you know 50k is not that much longer than uh, a marathon and it would be fun to do it's you know it's veering into the ultra territory Um, so that was that was exciting Um, so did a couple more around August um, because by this point my mentality was well if I'm doing them all really close to one another then I don't actually need to go through the whole training cycle I can kind of stay peaked as it were um which just means a lot less training in general so this is far more efficient approach um and so yeah i think that's kind of how i ended up packing the volume so quickly was the idea that i do one ramp up a year and then maybe get four five six marathons and ultras out of it 
um, which I'm not entirely sure is what you're supposed to do. Um, but it just, you know, it seemed like a very good use of my time. <laughs> yeah, ultra running is funny. Like there's what you're supposed to do and then there's what your body responds well to and that you enjoy. So um, probably the like side of it that is a problem you have to solve to how to get your body to run that far is something that like appeals to a mind like yours. So I would imagine that like made it more fun. So go for it. Yep. Okay. So let's get into what happened more recently in when you were diagnosed with serious anemia. Um, Mm -hmm. What were you starting to feel? And I guess, especially like, were you uncertain if this was something that your body was just kind of feeling naturally or that was being or was happening because of the running? Um, I mean, to be honest, it definitely wasn't something that I had noticed happening, um, particularly given the timing of it all. Um, so I hadn't noticed my running time slowing down particularly, you know, I'd always sort of been around a 10, 10, 30 minute mile runner. Um, and I was perfectly happy at that position. I was like, you know what, I, I don't need to be super competitive with this. Um, I can, I know my body can take me far. That's fine. It doesn't need to go fast as well. Um, so I'd been feeling kind of tired, but I mean, in the middle of a pandemic, I just, you know, I'd been out in Australia, been really enjoying that. I had just come back from Australia. I knew I wanted to move back out there permanently. I wasn't wildly excited about being back in London. Um, I kind of felt like I had to come back because you can't just leave for three months and then stay for years, particularly when, you know, you can't travel back to see your family. Um, you know, working from home the whole time. At that point, there weren't any vaccines or anything. So it was still pretty unknown as to how things were going to get back to normal. It was just a really, really depressing time. So the idea that I was tired, that I was demotivated, you know, there were always other explanations for it. And I think that's something that's very much always been true is, you know, if you've got a stressful job, um, if you've got, you know, particularly if you've got family demands, you know, you can always find an explanation for why you're tired, why you're just not really feeling that great, uh, particularly if there's not been any sudden change. Um, so the way I found out about it was actually it's sort of, you know, coming back from Australia and not having been able to be traveling to all these other countries, you know, like South Africa or India and all the countries that I would, you know, visit while I was there. Um, it was the first time in a really long time I'd actually been able to give blood. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back to giving blood, uh, something that I've really enjoyed doing. Um, and then when they took my iron levels at the start, you know, just to check that I could, I had the nurses going, you, you're quite anemic. And at this point, I couldn't tell whether or not it was quite anemic in the sense of, oh, you know, you're a bit anemic or whether it was that classic British understatement, which basically meant, OK, you need to get to a hospital now. And unfortunately, it turned out it was a bit more the latter. And they're basically like, OK, you really, really need to go see your GP and get this sorted as soon as possible. Um, and yeah, so that's how I ended up being diagnosed. Um, and because I was so anemic at that point, they're like, okay, well, we're going to take you in for a couple of iron infusions. Um, so I ended up sitting in the hospital for, I think, uh, three separate iron infusions over the course of, uh, probably a couple of months just to get my, uh, just get my platelet counts back under control or back up rather. And did they think 
like, did they have a reason for it? Or they were just like, we'll just do some of these infusions and things should start to improve kind of end of story? Uh, yeah, so it was it was very much that approach. It was kind of a, well, there's no obvious reason as to why this would be happening. Um, you know, they're sort of, they were doing some in other investigations, but nothing really came of them. And they're like, okay, well, we do have a few more things that we can test for. But rather than putting you through this additional battery of tests, let's just see if this happens again. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep monitoring you, make sure you come back for blood tests and stuff, or if you start getting tired again. Um, yeah, that, that was that was pretty much it. So obviously that made a huge difference. I mean, you said you went from running like a 10, 30 minute mile to sub 8.30 in a couple of weeks, which is amazing. And I think even if, you if you're a female running super long distances probably think about iron supplements anyways obviously disclaimer talk to your doctor um and then you started to do well start to podium um but found out that this anemia wasn't a one-off how did you realize that there was something else going on uh so i mean it was the fact that i became anemic again and at that point you sort of realize okay this isn't a one-off there is some underlying cause that is continuing to cause this um so went back for more tests then moved to australia and uh, became anemic there and they were like okay well you know this has happened a bunch of times so i'm going to give you another iron infusion and in the meantime we're going to figure out what's going on um and Celiac disease had been kind of the next on the agenda um, for sort of, you know, what they were going to test for in the UK. Um, Australia's medical system are very switched on to celiac disease as well. So it was one of the first things that they wanted to consider, particularly once they saw what had been ruled out from the UK. Um, And for the disease, it's very much something which, you know, it's you can get an indication pretty early on just with a straightforward blood test. Um, so they will look at your blood, um, and this only works if you're currently eating gluten anyway, but for me, you know, no family history of celiac disease, no obvious symptoms when I ate gluten. Um, so I was on a normal diet. Um, but they, the blood test will actually see, do you have any antibodies in your blood um, that are reacting to the gluten? Because um, I'm not sure if we mentioned this, but celiac disease is an autoimmune disease, uh, which where your immune system basically attacks gluten uh, when you eat it. Um, but unfortunately, that has a side effect of causing issues with your digestive tract and basically flattening the surface area of it. So you can't absorb as much, uh, which means you're not able to get as many calories in. Um, and you're also not getting the vitamins and minerals you need, which is why I was going anemic. Um, I wasn't absorbing the iron that I needed to. Um, okay, so I think that's so interesting because what's happened is the the line between, well, over here anyways, between celiac and gluten intolerance has really been blurred. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a, what your what happened to you was exactly what happened to my dad. And that would have been... I want to say 12 years ago when like people didn't really know about this yet for us. Mm, Um, And then, you know, your doctor's like, you can't eat gluten. And you're like, oh my God, I can never have a potato again. Like nobody knows what it actually is. (laughs) So it was the same thing. People are like, oh, can you have chips? And I'm like, I mean, not if they're cooked in the same oil as like your chicken schnitzel or something. But yes, potatoes are fine. Please give me chips. I want chips. Exactly. Um, And so there's... 
like you said, the day-to-day -day symptoms where if gluten doesn't do super well with you, where you're like bloated and have kind of a stomach ache and yada, yada. Mm. Um, but then for people that have full celiac, like you and my dad, any cross-contamination, like you were saying, if it's cooked in the same fryer, like he had to have his own toaster because a crumb will then again kill all of the um, little fibers in your intestine that absorb nutrients, like you just said. So you could be eating as healthy as you want, but your body's not taking anything yep. from it. So like the actual celiac disease is way worse than I think the trendy, I eat gluten-free now that people think, and it's a real serious thing. Um, I guess like one other side note, and I don't know how scientific this is. This is just what my brother said. My dad, there's two genes apparently that will pass yep. down celiac disease. Um, and it looks like my dad has both of them and that my brother Cameron and I both got one where I'm still absorbing nutrients. But if I have gluten, like I break out in a rash almost instantly and um, my skin on my hands breaks open, um, like literally Ooh. within hours, it's so bizarre. And they start to like bleed and then my eyes get puffy so there's like a reaction, but I would never say I have celiac. Like I'm not, I still can absorb nutrients from food. So there seems to be so many like areas. Anyways, that's just my celiac tangent. Um, <laughs> okay. So back on track. I almost don't even remember where we were now. Um, where did, what did you think when you got a proper diagnosis? Um, I mean, on the one hand, when I got the blood test saying, okay, you've got antibodies and this is the most likely explanation, I was there being like, but I don't have any family history. And, you know, I've known other people who are celiac and have been celiac since they were kids. And, you know, my view of people who have celiac disease is, okay, you get bloating or you throw up when you have gluten or, you know, you get all sorts of fun bowel complications whenever you have it. And I was like, I get none of those things like, you know, it's it's not like, oh, I just don't notice it because bloating's so normal for me now. I just, I did not get any of them. And I didn't realize that you could be a thing called silent celiac. Um, but, you know, the doctors were like, it is possible for you to have these sort of internal reaction and for you to still be doing the long-term damage, but not have any of the immediate symptoms. Um, so I ended up going for a gastroscopy, which is uh, like an endoscopy, but the other way. So the tube goes down your throat. Um, just to see what was going on in uh, my intestines and see whether or not the sort of little fingers had started to flatten, um, which is a sort of official confirmation of whether or not you have the disease. Um, and unfortunately, that came back and it said, yes, they are starting to go a little blunt. You know, the damage wasn't too bad, but it is there. Um, so that is confirmation that you have celiac disease. And having had it confirmed both with the blood test and with the gastroscopy, I was like, well, finding it very hard to come up with some other reason like it's clear I do have the disease um so there was kind of that resignation um and also with the anemia you know there is that long-term symptom but it was still and to be honest it's still something that I struggled to wrap my head around I don't get any of the symptoms the immediate symptoms but it is still something I've got to watch out for um, and, you know, you hear about people with gluten intolerance and other people with celiac disease. And for them, it's it's so clear um, what this disease does. And then other people say, oh, what will happen to you? And I'm like, mm, I'll become really badly anemic in a few months time. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's been hard for my parents as well, because they go, oh, well, you know, could you maybe like 
have gluten say for Christmas dinner or something and like this isn't something where you can have a cheat day um but I think it's hard for people when they're like well you're not really getting any symptoms and I was like yes but please don't risk giving me any gluten and you know I still got to worry about cross-contamination single breadcrumb on a chopping board um so it is still definitely pretty hard about that that's super difficult like to not have an immediate consequence yeah it's kind of like I mean I would definitely rather have it the way I am because if I accidentally get gluten you know while I'm traveling or something it's not going to ruin a holiday it's not going to ruin a meal out um, but on the other hand, a lot of people, when they do get diagnosed, they're like, oh, this is, you know, really shit. And I can't have X and Y again. Um, but on the other hand, they're like, oh my God, I feel so much better. And I got that after the iron infusions and it was crazy how quickly it came back. You know, my running times, oh my God, it's amazing. I'm actually what I consider fast now. And, you know, I've got so much energy and I actually feel happy again, which is, I think, um, one of the things that people who have, um, more, conventionally um uh appearing celiac disease they get once they once they stop eating gluten whereas for me it's kind of like well I feel exactly the same um and I'm not going anemic as much which is great but kind of rather have the iron infusions and eat bread but that's just not really an option (laughs) you know there's a lot of time in life left you never know maybe when we're 60 that'll be how it works I'm kind of hoping and that, you know, they're always like, oh, yeah, but I hear there are these pills you can take, which just stop your body reacting to. It. And I'm like, no, that is not good science. That is not going to work. Um, no, more complicated than that, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I get that a lot, too. They're like, oh, isn't it like the dairy thing? And I'm like, no, <laughs> more, more than that. Um, so did you feel like I know you talked about the difference? I guess I, I sort of just don't think. No, I shouldn't say that's so controversial. It really depends. Um, You talk about feeling different after the iron infusions. Mm -hmm. Did your performance change at all after changing your diet? Uh, No. Interesting. Which is, I was so hoping it would. I was like, okay, it's going to be the (laughs) next level where I go to 7.30 and I start actually winning stuff. Um, No. I think because the effect had been on, you know, stopping me going anemic um, and that was kind of solved by the iron infusions. Um, It has meant that I haven't needed to have iron infusions, um, which is great because they do kind of get expensive, particularly when you've got to pay the prescription to get your iron. And then, um, you know, in Australia, you pay for them to administer the iron, which isn't crazy expensive, sort of like $30, $40, but it's still annoying. Um, but no, there's not kind of been that step up, um, to having more energy. So what, how have you dealt with then getting in enough calories, um, for super long distances, both in regular life training and then during races? Um, so I think in one respect, I mean, calories, uh, I haven't had to change too much. I mean, if anything, it's probably meant that I need a little bit less just because they're actually getting absorbed. Um, although, you know, it's I've not noticed a huge difference in, oh, you know, I only need half as many calories as before. Um, the damage to, to my intestines wasn't super bad. Um, so I think it was more impacting the nutrients that I was getting. Um, I think what I have found tricky was race nutrition. Um, so we, with day-to-day life, you know, I normally cook 
pretty much from scratch. And that's something that I'm lucky enough to enjoy. Um, and so I was able to adapt what I normally eat pretty quickly. Uh, but races were a little more tricky because, you know, I've normally relied on what you get at aid stations. And I'm lucky in that my stomach would pretty much cope with anything, you know, sort of see something nice. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll be able to eat this mid-race. Um, it wasn't like, oh, I can only eat this one specific thing. And, you know, I have to be on these gels. Otherwise, I get a real stomach upset. Um, but it has certainly taken a lot more planning. Um, you know, at the last uh, 100K I did, um, that was back in, I think, November last year, um, just a lot more communication with the race directors to be like, hey, are you going to have anything that I can eat? Um, and just explaining a little bit more about the disease and cross-contamination in particular. Um, and I think, you know, being very open in terms of, I'm not expecting you to come up with any options, um, but if you do happen to have something that I can eat, then I can just plan around that. Um, so there, it's yeah, it's a it's a lot more discussion with the with the race directors around what are you going to have. Um, also, bringing a bit more of my own food just as backups. I mean, the last thing you want is to get to an aid station um, and then say, oh, actually, sorry, you know, someone else had a gluten-free portion or, you know, we weren't actually able to do this um, and then to not have any food. Um, so definitely a lot more backup snacks than they used to be. What are your go-to nutrition things that you bring? Um, so in a long race, I do really like normal food. I've never been one for gels. Um, so I'll always pack something, uh, pasta related. Um, and you can get a, d- a lot of different types of, uh, pasta. You can get sort of pure corn based, which is pretty much entirely carbohydrate. Or you can get these sort of black box bodybuilder pulse red lentil pasta, which, um, are sort of more skewed towards protein and fiber. So depending on what I'm going to need at a particular stage in the race, um, I'll bring something like that. And, you know, something that I can eat cold or hot just in case they don't have a way to heat it up or it's sitting around in my bag for way longer than I thought it would. Um, In terms of energy bars and stuff, I used to adore Cliff Bars. Um, Sadly, most of them aren't gluten free, but their builders are. Um, So I really like those and you can get them in Australia, although I do stock up whenever I come to North America. and also really like Lara bars, which we don't get as much of in Australia. But again, it's something every time I'm in Canada or the US, I will just bring back suitcases full of them. Um, yeah, I love it. They're so simple, right? Just like, you know, there's five ingredients or something in there. Well, exactly. And the fact that they're aimed at women, which is, I think, one thing that I found is, you know, endurance running really skews towards men. Um, and therefore, a lot of the the race nutrition and a lot of the experiences that you hear about, you know, people with celiac disease and long run, it's all skewed towards men. I'm like, I have different requirements and particularly something nutrition related. It's just a sort of perfect storm of all the advice is related to men and I'm having a hard enough time figuring out what I need and how I'm going to get it. Um, because, you know, people are advising this type of pasta and this type of gluten-based thing. And I have to ignore half that advice anyway, um, and then by the time you look at the advice remaining and you go, okay, well, what portion of that actually relates to women? You're like, okay, very little as a whole. Um, so in that aspect, Lara bars and Luna bars have been really helpful. Yeah. Interesting. You're totally right. As especially protein requirements, um, mid race and outside of race. And then mm-hmm. different ages of women is different as well. Like, 
I've been talking to a few athletes going through menopause and things that they need because your body starts to lose muscle mass um, yeah. and to keep from getting injured. And there's just so many variables. Yeah. And particularly, I mean, as you're sort of aging or, you know, whatever, go through different life stages, you, you kind of, you're like, Oh, but I had this all figured out. And then you have to change it again. You're like, Oh my God. Yes. Um, Right. (laughs) Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's definitely interesting. So what other than cliff bars, so in day-to-day life, this is just kind of a mean question, but I'm going to ask anyways, what do you miss the most? (laughs) Oh, um, two things, really. I have really struggled to find good gluten-free pastry that actually tastes like pastry and isn't just mm-hmm. this thick, bready roll. Every time I see, like, oh, we do gluten-free croissant, and I'm like, that's not a croissant. That's a kind of crescent-shaped roll. Um, and I think particularly coming from sort of French background, I'm very particular about what a good croissant looks and feels like. Um, and so I've been, you know, I sort of baked bread and experiment with flowers and that's kind of been a fun, very academic um, experiment. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a nice distraction because I'm like, oh, cool. I'm going to learn about all these things um, and to, you know, figure out what makes good bread. I'm going to experiment. Um, but pastry is the one thing I've not been able to figure out. But I think more than that, it's, it's the spontaneity of just being able to go somewhere and go, you know, I can have anything on the menu um, or, you know, there's food hanging around. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll claim those leftovers or, you know, I'll try this. Um, and you just don't get that freedom. Um, and particularly when, when I'm traveling and it's kind of exhausting, you know, if you're staying in a hotel, which I am at the moment and just always having to figure out meals. Um, I remember being in Montreal um, back in January um, and it was during the lockdown, really bad timing. And all the restaurants were sort of doing takeout only. And I was staying in a hotel with no way to heat these things up. Um, so I remember just going to this very small radius of restaurants that were around the hotel that I was staying in um, that I could trust and just hustling back with my takeaway under my coat, just trying to keep it warm enough that it was still hot when I got back to my hotel room. Um which wouldn't have been an option if I'd been able to just order on Uber Eats like everyone else. Totally. And I think like when you go eat out as well, um, if you have to be really, I almost feel like there's a stigma now. Because oh, stigma. So that if, if you have to really ask and be like, no, I need to know if there's a sauce in there and I need to know if there's like something else in that same fryer or what have you, like you totally get the eye roll and the, ugh. Um, and so it must be challenging to be like, no, I have to stick up for myself and ask these questions. And if it seems annoying to you because you don't believe that this is like a serious thing, then like, so be it. But that must be a little bit challenging. Yeah, I think particularly, you know, we're raised very much as unfussy eaters um, in in our family. And, you know, food was very much a way of, of showing love um, and affection. And so there's something... Uh, that's really hard about saying actually sorry you know I can't have this and hey can you bring me a special menu and and what have you and I think yeah particularly with something like gluten you know it's nice to have that formal diagnosis because I think as soon as you say celiac disease people go oh you know that's a proper condition Um, whereas I think a lot of the time with something like gluten intolerance so you get people looking at you going well you know are you actually going to get symptoms or is this just an excuse not to eat carbs um and i think yeah gluten in particular does come with that stigma of you know are you just trying to lose weight um and i would like to put it out there 
gluten is not inherently bad like it's there is nothing wrong with it it is not a good way to lose weight and gluten-free products you look at the ingredients and you go how does it have so much crap in it um because they're using like twice the ingredients and all these gums and starches um and yeah i would say gluten containing stuff tends to be a lot less processed um so definitely stick with it yeah totally and i think sometimes you just replace the gluten with sugar and you're like why why aren't I losing weight this doesn't make sense yeah particularly sort of looking at these you know I see a bunch of fancy artisanal gluten-free sourdoughs and I look at the ingredients and I was like there is so much sugar in here just how I don't want sweet bread um yeah so do you have any advice um to anybody that maybe is just getting this diagnosis or starting to realize that they're not feeling great and they're not really sure how to navigate like the very beginning stages um so i think if you're just not feeling great i would say definitely go get tested um it's a really simple blood test just to see if you've got the antibodies um for it which is a good indicator of whether you're not if whether or not you've got celiac disease um and i would say recognize that it it's not necessarily going to present in a conventional form. Um, So for me, it was the loss of energy, which I hadn't really noticed because it had come on so gradually. Uh, But also it can cause sort of depression-like symptoms um, because your brain isn't getting enough oxygen um, if it's presenting as anemia. Um, And kind of uh, the potential for celiac disease is really scary, but at the same time, you know, if you can get that treated, it can make the world of difference. You know, I could not believe how much of an effect the iron infusions had. Um, I would say there is a, you know, it's really upsetting to get the diagnosis because you sort of look at everything that you can't have in your life, but it is something that you adapt to. Um, and I'd say there are a lot of groups out there. Um, you know, I'm really not one for using Facebook on a regular basis, but there are a few Facebook groups that I'm part of, you know, one's in Australia. Um, I join ones in parts of Toronto and Montreal when I've been traveling, which is super helpful about sharing, you know, where you can go eat and um, ingredients in supermarkets and just generally advice on it. Um, So I would say join those if you have had a diagnosis because they're just really helpful and kind of help you embrace what you can do rather than focusing on what you can't. Um, And then when it comes to running, I would say it is definitely more work, but don't forget that, you know, particularly if you're racing, you can chat to the race directors, um, particularly if it's a smaller race. And I'd say definitely don't be afraid to do that. Um, I think as long as you approach it with a, hey, just wondering what you can do, I'm not asking you to do anything extra, you know, just trying to figure things out. So, um, for example, in my last race, you know, I was said, hey, I've got this. Are you going to have anything that's suitable for me? No worries at all if not. Um, and just give a few examples like, oh, you know, bananas are fine. I'm more than happy to explain what I can and can't have in more detail. Um, so they ended up doing a sauce. I ended up bringing my own gluten-free pasta. Um, you know, they, they had a bunch of snacks. So I'd said, okay, what snacks are you going to have? And then I looked up, you know, can, or, can, I, can I not have these? Um so yeah, I think don't forget that you can ask and don't be embarrassed about asking. Um, it can feel awkward, but you know, no one would judge you for having a nut allergy or anything like that. And I know gluten-free has a stigma, but I think 
it's one that you just say, look, it's, it's you know, genuinely affects me. Um, and I think people are fine. And, you know, race directors are lovely, lovely people. That's so true. That's really good advice that you can just explore your options without being super demanding and people, it's all how you approach things and just in general in life anyways. Yeah, I think a lot of people just assume that you can't possibly ask. And particularly, I think with larger races, when, you know, the sign up process is a bit more anonymous and all this, uh, all the communication comes from a do not reply email. Um, I think that would feel a bit overwhelming. But I mean, most of my experiences with trail races, just because I enjoy trails more, um, which tend to be a little bit less formal. Um, so there, I think you can have that direct communication. Uh, but equally, I think with larger races and road races, you know, they, they tend to be a little bit more about explicit about what they're going to have. And, you know, they'll often have sponsors in particular, energy bars or gels or stuff. So I think there it's, you will generally be able to find out what kind of nutrition they will have. Um, and if you're the type of person who's maybe is a little bit more sensitive as to what you can can have, you know, just try it out, experiment with what they're going to have um, during your training and see if it works for you. And if it doesn't, you know, just more snacks. Always more snacks. <laughs> Always more snacks. So our last question, first of all, thank you so much. There's been so many great tips and just hearing other people's story, I think will help a lot of people. And it sounds like you're obviously um, pretty on top of how to navigate this. Um, so celiac aside and just looking at at trail running what do you think is like the biggest gift that trail running has given you um I think I would say two really uh the first one is just freedom um you know you can lose yourself out on the trails and just get this amazing sense of discovery you know visiting places that you haven't been before and just to be out in nature by yourself sort of minimal responsibilities other than to keep yourself going is just something that you know we're so lucky to be able to have um and besides that I think it's figuring out that I can do a lot more than I expected you know I never ever dreamed that I was the kind of person who'd be able to run these kind of stupid distances um you know particularly being the academic child and and not the sporty one I just it seems unfathomable to me that I could do these things where people go, oh my God, you can do that. And I'm like, well, yeah, I, I guess I can. Um, so it's always been a surprise of actually, no, you, you can do this thing, which, you know, maybe didn't really believe that you could, um, which has been a real, um, it's been a real uplift. You know, if you can do this in one aspect of your life, then you can sort of apply it to other aspects, you know, be that work or, anything else of just being able to go actually you know this thing might seem unachievable but I bet you can do it totally totally I love both of those things so much um it's been so great to chat with you you're so well spoken I'm really excited to get this out and share it around so thank you so much for taking the time if our listeners want more from you do you have an Instagram or anywhere that people can reach out um I have an Instagram that I don't post that much to but uh I would be more than more than happy to chat um particularly if anyone else has any experiences with this then I you know it's still something that I'm navigating so I would love to hear from them or more than happy to answer any questions um so that's Instagram at the ultra running kitchen um all one word um as I said I don't post a huge amount but uh more than happy to hear from people on there Okay, awesome. And I'll link to all of that in the show notes as well. Well, thank you again and have a fabulous rest of your day. 
Thank you so much for having me.